1: Hello and welcome back to the Nonprofit Investment Stewards podcast. I'm Bob DeMeo and as always joined by my co-host Devin Francis. We have a terrific show today, a continuation of our three-part mini-series on higher education. And in this episode, we are joined by a special guest, actually chairman of an investment committee for a university endowment with over 200 million in assets. But before we get to that, Devin, how are you today?
2: I'm wonderful, thank you. I've had my coffee and I'm ready to go and excited to hear from our guest. We're going to be talking about what endowment committees are dealing with in the current environment and how they're navigating the challenges that are on the landscape.
1: Excellent, Devin. Well, with that, let's jump right to our guest Today, we are so very pleased to have Bruce Lanning join us. As mentioned, Bruce chairs the investment committee for a university endowment, specifically Valparaiso University in Indiana. And Bruce does a lot more. He's on the board at Velpo. He's a managing director at Wealthspire in Milwaukee, where he has a leadership role and he's also a wealth advisor for private clients. He's super active in his community, a trustee for the Milwaukee Symphony, a member of the Milwaukee Analyst Society, and a whole lot more. And I can tell you personally, Bruce is an all around good guy. So, Bruce, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bob. It's nice to be here. Looking forward to this.
2: So Bruce, before we get to the very important role of overseeing a university endowment, can you please tell us a bit about yourself and how you actually ended up as the endowment chair for Valparaiso?
3: I sure can. Well, I, my background, uh, I was an under, undergraduate at, in the business school at Valparaiso and uh, and then uh, joined a business world in Chicago. Uh, I was from, from Chicago at the time and uh, we wound up. Working in the uh, investment or investment technology IT area, and then wound up joining the trust department at uh, a large bank in Chicago. And from uh, had a lot of interest in investments from a pretty young age. So, I wound up uh, becoming a trust portfolio manager, and somewhere down the road, wound up in a leadership position at company, uh, the big bank in Milwaukee and wound up being asked to join the board of directors of Valparaiso. That was about 14 years ago now. And it was interesting to note that there wasn't a lot of uh, individuals on the board that had a background in investments and investment management. And yet the school had a fairly sizable endowment at the time. So I felt like there was a pretty important uh, position that I could be in, in a role that I could fill and offer some some good value to the board that way.
1: That's great, Bruce. And maybe you can share with us, tell us a little bit what the current environment is like at Valparaiso. We know higher education faces a lot of uncertainty and a lot of challenges, but just in a macro sense, what is the overall environment like at the school?
3: Well, it's an enthusiastic school. There are a lot of uh, great students there. The tone of the faculty and the administration right now is a little bit somber because there are challenges in front of us. Uh, One of them being, of course, the coronavirus and whether schools operate virtually or in person, whether teachers teach in their classes, but in addition, whether or not students are even going to be on campus. But the other component is a challenge of enrollment. And uh, we have always felt that when there is an issue between revenue and expenses, it's more of a revenue problem than an expense problem. And so we we have a, a lot of focus on trying to grow enrollment, but it's a very challenging time for that. So. There's been some expense reductions over this past year that are reasonably significant. And the tone of the faculty across is is a little bit somber. There's been not the same level of salary increases and there, there hasn't been quite the same level of enthusiasm because there's been a concern about making sure that the revenue expenses match.
1: And that's understandable, particularly, right, you're acting in a stewardship role, you and the board and the committee are acting in a stewardship role, and you're thinking long game, right? And uh, there can be some, some challenging decisions and discussions, I'm sure, in the interim. Well, in Valparaiso's board, we are
3: organized in various committees, and the committees make a majority of the big decisions with regards to their subject matter, but each of the board members shares two committee assignments. So my second assignment is in the finance and administration committee. And therefore I'm looking over the budgets and the balance sheets and income statements along with the endowment and both sides of that. Uh, But I would say the challenge is definitely uh, managing the budget to the size of the university it, uh, oftentimes when you have a disruption in the industry you're going to get uh, rethink about exactly how a school will will position itself going forward and of course there's uh, for those that maybe aren't aware there's the belief that there is going to be a uh, in an enrollment cliff that occurs which is kind of interesting that that were still being impacted in the next few years by the 08 and 09 recession because the people that would be having babies in 08 and 09, there were much fewer children being born during the Great Recession. And those kids will be going to college in 2026. So there's actually an expectation that enrollment nationally is going to be down about 15% at that time, which is not that far ahead of us.
2: Wow, Bruce, you just made me feel really old with with some of those numbers. (laughs) (laughs) That's a reality check. So stepping away from the the finance considerations which of course are hugely challenging in the current environment, can you talk a bit broadly about how the endowment portfolio is structured? So Bob mentioned that it's over 200 million. Can you talk a bit about some of the uh, different asset classes that you have exposure to? Maybe how the portfolio has evolved over the years?
3: I can. We have uh, around 250 million in assets. Uh, I would say that the board has, and the committee in particular has, been willing to accept and absorb some level of risk with regards to the portfolio. So I would say we're we are not risk averse as an organization. Uh, part of that reason is that uh, the combination of this committee is endowment management, but it is also capital planning, which is related to the balance sheet. So we're involved with creating lines of credit for the university, for looking at our bond ratings and potentially evaluating uh, tax exempt bond issues, which we have done. And so therefore trying to create uh, liquidity pockets that are available that would prevent the the endowment from having a huge draw demand, maybe at the worst time in the economic cycle. So the portfolio itself is, has a target now of about 90% equities, but the 90% I would say has about 10% that's allocated to non-traditional type equities like real estate and uh, natural resources, there's another of the 80% that is in uh, more traditional equities. Actually, we have been willing over quite some time now, uh, more than 10 years to have a significant allocation to illiquid investments. So we have up to 30 pools that we are invested in of private equity and venture capital. And that's about half of the, 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 the other portion of the portfolio. And then we actually take the, the fixed income part of the portfolio and we try to make it uh, as maximally uh, exposed to what happens if the equity markets go down. And so we have a, a long treasury exposure on the, on the small portion of the portfolio, which tends to act bigger than its size in the effect of of, uh, volatility dampening when things go sour.
2: That's interesting. So you have kind of a barbell approach. You have the fixed income, which is very conservatively profiled, and then the equity part, which is a bit more aggressive.
3: Absolutely, correct.
2: And how has, you mentioned that you have exposure to about 30 underlying private equity strategies. How has right. that evolved over the years? Has the committee or the the endowment overall always been committed to the private equity space, or is that something that has evolved over your tenure on the committee?
3: It has evolved, and not all of the experience there has been good. Uh, we've learned some lessons along the way. Uh, we had a pretty significant uh, real estate, private real estate component that that problems in in the 08 and 09 recession that uh, cost some significant uh, returns. But our view is that you have to spread out the risk of your exposure by owning a number of different, what we'd call vintages, uh, which are new launches of pools of private equity in order to spread the risk out of any one vintage year being a difficult year for investing. And so with our private uh, exposure, our belief is that we're able to achieve somewhere between 2 and 4% returns above the public equity markets over time.
1: And Bruce, given the current state and the volatility and the uncertainty, has the committee taken on any sort of different view in terms of the liquidity of the portfolio and the amount that might be allocated to less liquid asset classes and strategies?
3: We actually do a very significant amount of work related to liquidity. So I, would, I, I think that's an excellent question because we look at, for instance, we just completed a study in the last meeting, we went through that, which says, what if the markets draw down 20% from here and 10% the following year, which is kind of a cataclysmic market event, how can we manage our liquidity of the portfolio? And it, it is, it's a meaningful exercise because it gives us a comfort level in how much illiquid investment we can make. As you know, Bob, these are long-term investments they, you don't always predict when the distributions are gonna occur or when the capital calls are gonna occur. And so the other part about spreading them out is that you have a, a wave of funds. We have a wave of funds that are in their distribution phase at the same time that we have a, some new pools that we're investing in that the capital calls are coming. And we kind of evaluate that and say, like we've looked out two or three years and said, we're going to have significant amount of distributions in year two and three, most likely we need to put an investment in place that starts calling capital about that same time if we're going to maintain our illiquid equity percentage.
1: That, that sounds like a very thoughtful approach and pacing model and so on. Before we talk spending policy and that sort of thing, there obviously are large allocations to more traditional investments as well. Can you talk a little bit about active versus passive and the committee's view on that? I can.
3: I would say that the committee probably had a a bigger influence in the domestic markets and moving more towards a passive approach over the last, I don't know, I would say five years at least. We've always had a component of passive, but I would say that we are probably a shared level of passive and active, probably more passive now than active in the in the US domestic large cap stock market. We believe that there is some ability to add value by active managers, maybe more so in smaller and mid-sized companies, as well as international investments.
1: And do you tend to be neutral or will you have shifts and allocations based on value versus growth? Uh, we have tended to be
3: more neutral on that. I think that to the extent that we are passive in a big component, the passive index has actually become a growth-leaning index at this point. So it's, it's interesting to see that you wind up leaning in the direction of what's working, with that passive component, and you wind up having a little bit of a bias towards towards growth when growth is working. But that's part of what we like about that. We're not. Uh, we understand ourselves as a committee and not being a committee that's going to jump on the phone on a week and say, you know, we need to make a tactical change. That's not typically how we're going to respond or act. So we we've tended to think longer term that way and it's it's worked pretty well, but also just understanding that we're we're not going to be able to make those very quick strategic shifts like maybe some others might do.
2: Right, long-term approach tends to work better. So going to the topic of spending policy. You mentioned that you try or that the committee tries to avoid significant drawdowns. Do you have a formal spending policy in place? Do you typically take a certain percentage from the portfolio or do you try to just let it grow and not touch the portfolio at all?
3: That is a question that we evaluate almost every year, but it's uh, actually, we've kept the Spending policy in place that, that that's another policy that was born out of probably the 08 and 09 recession, because prior to that. We had a policy that basically spent a percentage of the portfolio each year on market value and then after 08 and 09 hit there was a little bit of a rude awakening, particularly in, at the end of 08 as to. A level of spend that was going to be quite a bit less that affected the budget pretty heavily. So we are now using a more of a smoothing approach to the portfolio and actually uh, we have about a 4% spend on the basic portfolio and then there is a draw for marketing of the endowment and a draw for the administration of the endowment. So. The, the policy right now is four plus one plus one, which has been about a 6% policy, but it's actually because of its smoothing levels in the way we've set it up, It we're actually spending somewhere around 5% uh, over the last 10 years. The, the What they put in place was something that said 70% of the 4% spend is going to be based on Uh, last year's spend plus uh, CPI type of a number. So what's happened is with the markets going up over the years, it's actually prevented the portfolio from spending more than it should, but also protecting it uh, in the downside that there isn't going to be a big uh, budget problem because of the spend.
2: So given the current environment and the challenges that you already discussed on the revenue side with decreased enrollment and the you know pandemic environment and not as many students on campus has there been any sort of discussion about increasing the draw from the endowment just to kind of get the university through this current environment?
3: Yes. I I can't imagine that any uh, university endowment oversight hasn't been looked at from that standpoint because of the shifts in, in enrollment and, the, and the, the shifts in the demographics that are occurring. Our, our shift was that we had a bit of an issue with new students over the last year or two, and we felt being a revenue problem that there was a demand for better technology, a better outreach to prospective new students. And so we allocated a portion of the of additional spend, had that big, long discussion, a decision a year or two ago to do this, uh, particularly for enrollment for basically for revenue generation. So yes, there there are one-time spends. We never do it for more than one particular period. And I think already, if you're at a sort of a formal 5 to 6% spend rate, you're kind of at the top end of what you should be doing as an endowment at this point.
1: Bruce, I think you're spot on when you talk about, uh, and spot on and prudent when you talk about other universities committees and so on probably examining this commit this uh, this strategy and potentially needing to draw down. I think of a valparaiso and a number of smaller and medium-sized schools that do not generate much revenue by way of athletics. But then I think about say Big Ten football where schools are literally modeling and navigating a hundred million dollar loss because of the lack of football. And now maybe it's paired back with the Big Ten kicking up. But it's very interesting. I think any good investment committee would model these sorts of things. And so that leads to really wanting to glean your insights on what makes for a good investment committee, in your view, and how has yours evolved over time? Well, we have a governance committee
3: that I also participate on because I'm the chair of the capital planning and investment committee and the governance committee identifies uh, individuals for the board and it also identifies individuals for committees. I feel blessed that we have a broad cross section of backgrounds, which I think is important to have for an investment committee, not just to have. Uh, somebody of my background with a investment management type background, but also have somebody from the accounting field. One of our individuals comes from private uh, from, from a private equity holding. Uh, one of them comes from a compliance area. So it it's a combination of people all in leadership positions that create this committee, and then uh, securing longer-term relationships. Some, I think our board also did this a while back, which, which was to shift people between committees a lot. And there seemed to be too much of a learning curve happening every other year for people joining or leaving the committee. So we've done a little bit less of that over the last four or five years than we've done before so that people can really get to know the history behind the decisions that are being made and not to go in and make a big decision difference. We also feel that people can't come in with one approach in mind already and wanting to influence the rest of the committee on that approach. Uh, That's happened a a couple of times in our committee's history that I've been on and uh, people have to keep an open mind. We're very open. We welcome difficult discussions on the portfolio and scenarios. And I think that creates a a healthy environment. But if you're preset on one particular approach that somebody knows personally, or they know a person that can help personally, that's typically a problematic when it comes to endowment management. Bruce
1: is the chair. What is your strategy to help the committee, and sometimes it's even just a single committee member or two, that might become short-sighted in their thinking, and I don't say that as really a knock on the person, but just with markets and news and and uncertainty and nervousness, might become short-term thinking or oriented, yet you know this is a university that should exist in perpetuity. What is your strategy for kind of corralling if you will the committee to really keep their long-term stewardship caps on that has come
3: up and i would say that the way that we have handled that previously is that we have conversations outside of the committee meeting to discuss the particular issues or desires of the committee member to do certain things. And if they are willing or if they are not willing to go along with the committee's majority decision is a very important issue because there are people that are short-term in thinking, particularly in the recent past where we're having major, major issues happening uh, economically speaking. And I think that It's important for everybody to try to keep that focus. But on occasion, I can think of one committee member that just decided they couldn't live with um, not reacting to the short term and decided that it probably wasn't best for them. And I think the committee handled it very professionally, which is that we discussed it at length and we voted on it. And came to that conclusion and they said, well, they're not going to be able to accomplish what they personally wanted to do with this endowment. And we moved on.
1: So I I was proud of that. Sounds like everyone was putting the university first. Absolutely.
2: And it can be so hard. I mean, you talked about the importance of building an investment committee with not only diverse perspective and backgrounds, but also with some level of financial and investment expertise. So a lot of times when you get multiple people with investment backgrounds in the room, everyone feels the need to kind of prove their worth and sometimes to some people that may lead them to... Suggest changes, or you know, makes short-term changes just to say, "Hey, I made my mark on the portfolio." But usually, when we're dealing with a perpetual pool of assets, that's not the prudent thing to do.
3: I absolutely agree. It does it does come up that people want to prove their worth. I think that the committee has evolved a lot and I think it's actually functioning extremely well right now, but it hasn't always. And there's been some discussion and decision about major shifts in strategy. Mostly that occurred during the 08 and 09 recession and the great recession. And I think that out of that came a pretty healthy level of oversight. We hopefully learn from our mistakes uh, and, and move forward. The other part of what this committee actually does is outside of the endowment per se, from the standpoint that we evaluate properties within the university that we would uh, designate as non-core properties have been people that are in the property management business in Valparaiso that want to have an opportunity to work on those. And we we just uh, the number one rule in our our view is not to have any conflicts not to have any business interest in the outcome of the decisions that we're making on behalf of the university
1: Bruce, as, as we draw near our close here, and this has been so insightful, it's so generous of you to take the time to share this perspective, which will be so helpful to so many folks working in any capacity in terms of university, endowment, oversight, that sort of thing. But what about Bruce Lining, the person? Just two questions. One, this pandemic year has been challenging and strange and weird to say the least. Tell us one silver lining that Bruce Lanning has experienced. And then I know you're a self-described servant leader. What do you mean by that?
3: Well, I actually, one of the harder changes was that I have made a commitment a little bit later in life here to be more significantly focused on physical fitness. And what I'm missing this year was that in the, uh, for the first time in my life in the prior two years, I did uh, six triathlons. There were no triathlons this year. <laughs> so I, I miss that. I actually I enjoy, it, it's a goal to keep in mind to get ready for a certain time to go do, do an event. And uh, it, it's a focus. I, I like having the goal in mind. But I did manage to uh, work a lot on things at home. And I think that Causing a, a, there was a good change in focus that uh, shaped things up a lot at home. But I, I miss uh, the interconnectivity that I have in my business and in the city of Milwaukee where I live. Uh, and I think that that's something that uh, I look forward to things opening up a little bit more. I, the social interaction is fine. My significant, significant other looks at me in the back home office uh, where we are, some, um, or where I have been most of the time since spring, and I have five screens up. <laughs> and <laughs> she looks at me and shakes her head. <laughs> so uh, it's like, well, this is what I do for a living. So, you know, I have to have the various screens up to look at different pieces of data, and I've actually I've been able to focus. The, the interesting thing is that I think I'm actually working more now than i did before because there is kind of no no end to the day sometimes and so it's i find that fascinating
2: You're so right. I was just saying to a colleague how I feel like I kind of dribble in and out of my day. I I get started in the morning. Then I take my kids to school. I let the dog out. I get back to my desk. And then at the end of the day, I leave my desk, go down and make dinner. But I always make my way back up. (laughs) It's it's hard to put a a full stop to the end of the workday. Yes. So yes. Bruce, can you go back to Bob mentioned that you describe yourself as a servant leader? Can you go back to what you mean by that?
3: Sure. I enjoy the roles that I have or I'm in most cases, a lot of cases, I'm not you know, I'm not looking for recognition, but I'm I'm looking for the the leadings of my God in the process and uh, I, as a part of that, I've actually mentored a lot of people in coming from difficult points of their life where they're losing almost everything or uh, lo- having a difficult time relating to people. And I find sometimes I have the opportunity to connect with those and it makes me so very grateful for what I have, what I'm able to do. And I think that's something that I feel that I am basically called to serve that way. With regards to the office, part of it is uh, encourage people to get involved with the community, to get involved with things they're passionate about. I'm also a a trustee for the Milwaukee Symphony Endowment, and I have a passion for the arts as well. But I find that uh, those are all time commitments. And I, I tell people that if they're going to get involved with those types of things, they they have to first have a passion for it. It can't be a business purpose that they're looking for. It's gotta be something that they think that they can help make better. And that's part of it. And taking extra time for people that aren't necessarily connected to the business. I think partly I look to my late father that way who ran a a natural gas pipeline company in the Chicago area. what I remember and noticed about him was that he was an individual in his office where he knew everybody from top staff in the organization to the security guard out front and would say and talk to each one of them by name when I visited him at the office. And I thought that's, that's something to look up to. So I've, I've tried to, to do that.
2: That's very commendable. It sounds like your life is meaningfully driven, which is important. And you mentioned the word gratitude. I think the practice of gratitude is just so vital uh, to, to living a happy and content life and having gratitude kind of drive our our actions is, is really important. So Bruce, I echo Bob's comments that this has been so insightful. We really appreciate your time. You've given us a lot of interesting uh, and thought-provoking answers to our questions, and it's great to hear about how Valparaiso is handling the current environment. I am excited about the third part of our mini series coming up. So we'll have a trifecta of higher ed experts, uh, which will be out in the coming weeks. And also, I'm excited for our other upcoming shows. So Bruce, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Bruce. And as we wrap up, three things for our listeners. One, remember to subscribe to the show and know we welcome your reviews. Next, if you have a topic you'd like us to address or perhaps someone you know would be a great guest, please reach out to me or Devin via LinkedIn. And then finally, if you lead a nonprofit or perhaps serve as a board or committee member and you hope to explore strategies to potentially better manage the investments you oversee, please contact me or Devon, and certainly visit Demeoschneider.com, where you'll find a ton of great resources. So to all you good stewards, thanks for investing time that helps your nonprofits prosper. We'll connect with you soon on the next episode.
0: Thank you for listening to the Nonprofit Investment Stewards podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified of new episodes and visit demeoschneider.com for more information. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of DeMeo Schneider & Associates. Content is made available for informational and educational purposes only and does not represent a specific recommendation. Always seek the advice of qualified professionals familiar with your unique circumstances.